Please give your Bibles open there, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 8, verse 9. That's what we're going to look at this morning. <coughs> now, over this Christmas period, I suspect um, there will be a time when you find yourself watching television. It is inevitable, isn't it? After you have consumed a, a large meal, right, and played all the family games, at some point, you definitely find yourself sitting in front of the telly. I'm not recommending it. I'm just observing. I'm just saying it's, it's bound to happen. But you can tell me next Sunday if I'm right or wrong. But if you are going to end up, if, that, if, if I'm right, you find yourself watching TV, can I suggest that you're, you decide to, if you're going to watch anything, the best show for you to watch is Money for Nothing. Money for Nothing. It's basically a BBC show where they take other people's rubbish. And the BBC presenter rescues the rubbish uh, from the council's refuse collection site. And then with the help of a designer and some little investment, they turn these items into desirable items, which are then sold off. So they are transformed. And when they are sold off, the, the, the profit from the sale is then returned to the person who disposed of the items originally. And uh, when you watch that show, I'm sure you'll be amazed by the transformations that are there. And it will give you ideas for next year, right? But that's not a reason to say I think it's a show worth watching. I think it's worth watching over Christmas because I think it's a perfect illustration of the message of Christmas. Particularly the message we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which we read. It's this. It says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The Apostle Paul is saying to us, God in Jesus entered this refuse dump of our planet that first Christmas day, and he came to transform us into something priceless. And the word Paul uses to describe what God has done for us is grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Well, grace is not simply God unconditionally accepting people who fail to tick all the boxes. It is that to a degree. But it's bigger than that. In the Bible, you see, grace describes God's loving and relentless pursuit to save not his friends, but his enemies. People who do not want anything to do with God. And in this verse, Paul is saying, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. This is why God came down to us that first Christmas. He came to shower us with grace. And so this morning, um, to prepare you for the day ahead, as you sit down with family members and eat your meals and all that, I just want to share with you three important truths from this verse that helps us to understand the grace of Christmas. Because I think that's what Christmas is about. It's about grace. So I just want to share with you three truths from this verse of what they teach us about the grace of Christmas. And the first truth from this verse uh, in front of you, it's simply this. The Lord Jesus is our rich God. The Lord Jesus is our rich God. When life is fragile, we order to what is familiar, don't we? 
And so it's not a surprise that as the world collapses around us, this Christmas, we are all going big. Yeah, please feel free to come in to the front. There are enough seats there. We hold on to what is, as I said, we, when the world is collapsing around us, we hold on to, 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 to what we value most. And this Christmas, therefore, we, we are holding on to those wonderful path traditions, and we are going big, aren't we, uh, on Christmas. I went to a popular African supermarket in West Thamesmead on Thursday, and it took me two hours to get out. I don't know why I agreed when Eunice said go there. <laughs> I knew it was a bad idea. <laughs> two hours to get out. Long queues. And, and I've been thinking we're in a recession. <laughs> it doesn't look like it. In fact, I had the same experience yesterday when I went out to, to, to Sainsbury's. Uh, there massive queue and people very stressed. I, they, they seem they're doing all right. I don't know why Rishi Sunak is worried. But... <laughs> I think, though, is that as a culture, as a people, we love Christmas, don't we? And my impression, as I said, is that this year particularly, we, we are going big on Christmas. We really do want to go through the rituals of Christmas. Uh, the traditions, the tinsel, the tree, the presents, the Christmas cards, the c- Christmas carols. The nativity that we had last Sunday, isn't it? The family reunions and, of course, Santa. But in the middle of our Christmas rituals, I think it is easy for us to forget this radical claim of Christmas that sits at the heart of the celebration of Christmas itself, which is that Christmas celebrates that Mary's baby is God the Son. That the baby of Mary is not an ordinary baby. He is God our creator being born in our flesh. The Bible teaches us that God is three individual persons in one essence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the three are one God. Not three gods, one God. And Jesus is God the Son. So what sort of life did Jesus, God the Son, have before he entered Mary's womb? Well, the answer is in this verse we read. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. In one word, Jesus was rich. When Paul thought about how Jesus lived before he became Mary's baby, is that he was rich. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean he was like Elon Musk. right? It means, I think, particularly to three things. First, Jesus has always been God in his divine life. He is rich because he is God. The most rich thing about any person is the life of that person. Without our human life, we are poor. We are dead. We're just a corpse. Even an animal then is richer than us if we are dead. Jesus is rich, therefore, in the sense that his very life He's 100% God. He's eternal. Independent. The person we are celebrating today is unchanging. Self-existent. Holy, wise, good, just, and glorious. The life of Jesus is rich 
in all his divine attributes as God the Son. So he's rich in that sense. Secondly, Jesus is rich also in relationship. What makes us really rich in life is the relationship we have. Those are the things that matters. Right? On your deathbed, you know, your car won't visit you. <laughs> it's those in your life that love you. Relationship is true riches after our own life. And therefore, when you think of Jesus being rich, we think of his relationship. Jesus constantly swims in an eternal flowing river of love from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He has always been loved and he has always loved. Because Jesus, you see, is part of the Holy Trinity. And in that Holy Trinity, he lives in a union that oozes out love that never ends. As I say, always loving and always being richly loved. That's Jesus. So he's rich in relationship, but he's also rich in sense of what he owns, isn't it? That's what we tend to think of mostly in life when we think of riches. It's the things we have. And Christ is rich in things he has. Because Jesus is God the Son. And as God the Son, he's the creator of all things. And he's the owner of everything that has been, that is, and will be. And all things exist for him. Paul writing to the church at Colossus says this in Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible, that is things we can see. And invisible things you have, you can't see. You have no idea they're even there. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or thrones. That means every cosmic power. All things were created through Jesus, him, and for him. You were created for Jesus. So what Paul is reminding us here is that Jesus, this Jesus who was born that first Christmas, has always existed as our infinitely blessed God forever. Amen. Beyond measure. So this baby Jesus, who is God, has not come because he needs something from you. He has not come because he's a beggar looking for your helping hand. I would even say, you coming here, you're not doing him any favor at all. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need your attendance this morning. He is our self-sufficient God. Jesus is our rich God. He has come because you need him in your life. He created you because he wanted to share love with you. He always had the love he needed in that rich relationship. He's self-sufficient. You were created not out of need for your company by him, but because he wanted to share his love with you. And he came especially on Christmas because you need him in your life. All human beings are spiritually poor before God. God is infinite rich, you are not. You are spiritually poor before God. We all need Jesus in our lives, and that is the second truth we learn here. The first truth is that Jesus is our rich God. The second truth is that all human beings, in contrast, are poor before God. All human beings are poor before God. 
I like the way Paul speaks in this verse. Because Paul speaks like an English gentleman. He does not shout aloud. You are poor. <laughs> As a Zambian, I'll probably do that. You are poor. No. He's a quiet English gentleman, isn't he? So it just lets us draw obvious conclusions that we are poor from this text. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We'll come to that in a moment. The, logic, the point I'm making is that the logic of this verse is obvious. God the Son entered our world to make us rich before God. And we'll talk about it in a moment. Because we are all born spiritually poor before God. In what way are we poor? Well, everyone is poor because everyone is born into this world as spiritually homeless. We are born without a spiritual life with God. You know, there are many people in this country who earn little, you know. They have nothing. They don't earn a lot. But because they live in this country, they have access to the NHS, the government support system, and all the many benefits that you only find out if you are down there. So they enjoy that. But what happens if these people commit a terrible crime? What happens to them? Well, they lose all their benefits, don't they? They become just a number in prison. I was reading the story of Boris Becker recently, and he described how he, what happened to him when he went to prison here in this country, the tennis player. He says, I just became a number. Nothing. Nothing. I had nothing. <coughs> Paul here is saying, all well, human beings are like people in jail. We are spiritually poor because we do not have a relationship with God who alone is rich. That is our default positions. Now, human beings were not created spiritually poor. We were created in the image of God, possessing his goodness, his love, and his kindness. God was our loving father. He loved us deeply. And all that belonged to God was ours. But our original parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God our Father. We walked out of the house and slammed the door in God's face. That's what the human race did. It slammed the door in God's face. And so everyone now who's born after Adam is like British-born jihadis. Do you remember them? The British-born jihadis? Those people who the UK gave everything? Seems like a long time ago now, but they decided to go and fight for Islamic State. Do you remember that? They turned their backs on British society. And do you remember what happened to them? Well, they started suffering abroad. We've got the case of Shamima Begum at the moment. They started suffering abroad. And they wanted to come back, but there was no way back for them. In fact, the government said that for those who came back, they went straight to prison. I think that's the picture of humanity. We are all rebels against God. We cannot enjoy life with God by default because our sin has cut us off from God. And the only place left for us is prison. Spiritual prison. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. All of us. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fed like a leaf, and our iniquities 
like the wind, take us away. We would all die one day. But it's worse than that. When we die, we must meet God, our maker. Our rebellion against God must come to an inevitable end. There is a time coming when everything you've held on to in your life will be stripped from you. Everything. Your beauty. Your job. Your relationship. All of those things you are living for will all be stripped away from you. And the Bible says, naked you came, naked you will go. So a time is coming when you stand before God, not with your clothes, but completely naked before him. Without anything that you can claim to be yours. And you stand before him to be judged by him for your sins. Many people regard God as an abused lover, don't they? Someone who has nowhere to go, no matter how terrible we treat him. He's always going to be there because, well, he needs us. That's how people treat God. But the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says God punishes sinners when they die. Everyone who's not a true Christian will go to eternal suffering in hell. Hell is a place where sinners have no enjoyment of the blessing presence of God. God is not absent from hell. God is present in hell. But his presence there is wrathful to sinners. All the wonderful and comforting attributes of God, which we read about in the Bible, which saints in heaven delight in, are against sinners in hell. The infinite justice of God is against sinners in hell. God refuses to remove their guilt. His justice guarantees that they will keep being punished in hell. The infinite holiness of God is against sinners in hell. When God looks at them, he hates them with perfect hatred. His holiness constrains God's love in hell. The infinite power of God is against sinners in hell. The power of God which sustains us, which keeps us every day, in hell it stands against us. Or the almighty power of God is aimed at tormenting sinners with no possibility of escape or respite in hell. The horror of hell is impossible for us to come to terms with. And so many of us just cannot bring ourselves to contemplate it. So we just shut our ears to it. I know you're probably thinking, why all this talk about hell on Christmas Day? Of all days, Chola, come on. I think we need to hear about it. As Brother Graham said yesterday, reminds us of carol service. We need to hear about it because that is what Christmas is about. The grace of Christmas is that we do not have to stay spiritually poor and suffer in hell. That's why Jesus came. God the Son, Jesus, became man to save us from hell. To save us from our spiritual poverty. What do you think Christmas is about? It's about that. That's what the world is celebrating today. A God who has entered the human race, humanity, to save sinners from God. 
from the wrath of God. Jesus has come to save us from our spiritual poverty before God. And that is the third and final truth we learn here. The first truth is what? The Lord Jesus Christ is our rich God. And then we learned the second truth. But we are poor, aren't we? All human beings are poor before God. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus makes us rich with God. This is our third and final truth. Jesus makes us rich with God. Now, the other people here may remember a popular song by the singer John. Is it John Osborne, I think? One of us. A hit from the 90s, I think, where she asked some piercing questions. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. If God had a face, what would it look like? John Osborne asked. Well, the sensation of good news of Christmas is that we know what God looks like. His name is Jesus. And God has come in Jesus to take on our poverty. Look at that verse again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What does Paul mean here? When he says Jesus became poor. What's that mean? He's saying God has come in Jesus to take on our poverty. And he's done that by himself becoming poor. But what did he mean that Jesus became poor? I think it means two things. First, God the Son became poor in his human nature. He took on our human flesh. For God, that is poverty. God the Son willingly put on our humanity with all its limitations. He didn't stop being God. He added to himself our humanity. And think about this. Jesus, as God the Son, is the author of life. He has life within himself. Yet, he became dependent on people in life. For example, as a human fetus, Jesus was completely dependent on Mary. Completely dependent on Mary. I mean, if Mary had died, humanly speaking, Jesus would have died that day. That's how dependent he was, humanly speaking. And when he was born, he was totally dependent on all of life and all of creation as a human being. The Lord Jesus, who as God holds the world together, as God became, as, as a human being, became subject to the laws of physics... Biology and chemistry, that keeps human life going. Think about that as a man in his humanity. So just when you think about his nature, what he put on is poverty for him. Secondly, God the Son became poor in how he lived and died. Jesus was brought up in Nazareth. A place of shame. Do you remember Nathaniel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. The mother of Jesus was a poor teenager who gave birth to him in a manger of all places. 
His adopted earthly father was a simple carpenter named Joseph. In fact, much of the life of Jesus was lived in poverty of obscurity. The Bible doesn't record his life to make the point that as far as that the Lord Jesus, in effect, spent 30 years swinging a hammer with his dad. A poor life. At the age of 30, Jesus began a public career of preaching, healing, feeding people, and befriending misfits, drunkards, thieves, rebels, and demoniacs. The poverty of his life, even in ministry. And of course, his career only lasted three years before he was put to death by crucifixion. A poor death, because it was reserved only for the worst of society. God the Son, our Lord Jesus, born, lived, and died in poverty. Now, the amazing thing is that our Lord Jesus chose to become poor. That's what the point, that's the point Paul is making. He chose to put on the rags of human flesh without stopping being God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, out of choice, he became poor. Why did Jesus take on this poverty? Well, we read on, so that, because, so that by his poverty, you, may, you, you might become rich. Paul is saying Jesus became poor that first Christmas for you, friend. And the you is very specific here. The you is the Corinthians. True followers of Jesus Christ. He became poor for you who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it for you knowing that you'll be born to be sinful and rebellious against God. That your heart would be cold and hardened towards him. He did it in advance knowing that you'll be born loving sin and hating him. And yet Jesus still became poor for you in advance. So when you are born in this world, he would win you back to God. If he's speaking to us, being born today. Jesus came to be born in your humanity so that he can go to the cross to die for your sin. To suffer on that cross the wrath and judgment that you deserve. And because Jesus died on the cross for you, you who are trusting in him, all your spiritual debts, you owe God, says Paul, have now been cancelled by God forever. But God has not just cancelled your debt, says Paul. You are not just, you are not back to zero debt. It's more than that. When Jesus died for you, he credited his heavenly riches to your life. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become, not without debts, but you might become rich. This is a sensational grace of Christmas, isn't it? Jesus, God the Son, became poor by being born as one of us, so that he could die for our sins on the cross. And all who truly trust in the Lord Jesus are now declared spiritually rich before God. How does trusting in Jesus make us spiritually rich? Well, first of all, it does not mean we become like Saudi billionaires. You know, sadly there are ungodly people you may have heard about who pervert the grace of God by teaching such foolishness. 
Many prosperity teachers lead to churches around the country and on the internet. And they misuse this text as a pretext for gaining financial riches in this world. No, the Lord Jesus makes us spiritually rich in two ways. First, he makes us rich by giving us new spiritual blessings of having a new life with God forever. If you're trusting in Jesus this Christmas morning, God is now your father. You are now a child of God by birth. God has regenerated you. He has given you new life. You have been born of God, born again. And because you are now regenerated, your human spirit is now alive to God. Before you were dead, but now you are connected to God. You now share life with God. God himself, God himself lives in you. You are in union with him through Jesus. He's now living and sustaining you from within. He is our 24-7 friend and helper. And of course, you are now, if you're trusting in Jesus, a child of God by adoption. You have all the riches of being an heir to the throne of heaven. You carry our Father's name. And all that belongs to God is now yours in Christ. And then, of course, there is the future, isn't there? A time is coming when we shall have a new body, a new character. We shall be perfect like Jesus. And then there are riches of the new heaven, the new earth that lies ahead of us. We shall enjoy the riches of a life of infinite joy, peace, and glory with God forever. The Bible says our eyes can't even, our minds can't even imagine what God has in store for those who love him. So we have the riches of what God has in store for us. That's how Jesus makes us spiritually rich. For things he does for us. Okay? Things he gives us. But all true followers of Christ also have the riches of what God saves us from. Jesus saves us from a life of sin against God. He saves us from living with the terrible consequences of a life without God. That brings despair and so much hopelessness. He saves us from that. Jesus saves us from living an empty and lonely life. A life where we have desires that can never be fulfilled. Where we never experience true love. He saves us from that. Jesus saves us from living without knowing our ultimate purpose in life. The non-Christian doesn't know why he's alive. Why do I exist? Why am I here? Where is my life going? Who am I? What is my identity? They don't know. Jesus saves true believers from that. He gives us purpose, meaning, identity. And Jesus saves us from living under the control of the devil. From a life where we do what the devil wants. He saves us from that. A life that worships Satan with our sin. He saves us from that. He saves us from a life in hell. He rescues us from everlasting punishment at the hands of our holy and righteous God. These and many are the riches of the grace of Christmas. Things we've been saved to and things we've been saved from. Jesus has come to make us spiritually rich. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, in an audience like this, all of us are at different points in our lives. Some of you here are not yet true followers of Jesus. You're not. Yes, you attend church, and you do many good things in life. Good things. But you cannot honestly say the Lord Jesus is the center of your life. That you live for him. A true Christian can say that. But you cannot say that. In fact, if we ask people around you, what is this person's greatest passion in life? Jesus would not even figure on, your top, on the top three they would mention about you. And you know that Jesus is not the anchor that steers your life. You know Jesus does not have your heart. You know your heart is on other things. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that you are not yet a true Christian. You are celebrating Christmas today as an enemy of Christ. What a thought. I wouldn't even celebrate Christmas. If I was in that situation. I wouldn't. It's an insult to Christ. Actually. To God himself. Jesus is saying to you this Christmas. Make it right. This Christmas. You are still poor before God. But I have come to save you. Jesus says. Turn to me and be truly saved. For I am your Savior. There is no other. Repent and surrender your life to me. There is no alternative. Rejecting me is not a path to lasting eternal riches. No, it is choosing destruction in hell. And friends, I'm so glad you're here. And because you're here, I urge you to pray to God now. To repent of your sin. And ask Jesus to give you a new life with him. Tell him you are coming home to him now. Do it. This year, celebrate Christmas properly. Not as an insult to the owner of Christmas. But as worship to him. Now, finally, some of you are already true followers of Jesus. What does this passage have to say to you? Well, just briefly. You know, like the Corinthians, you need a strong encouragement to be who you are in Christ. Did you notice how this verse starts off? With an important word, doesn't it? Look at that again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the four at the beginning of 9a. It basically means in light of the above. This verse is explaining everything Paul has been saying before. In fact, verse 1 to 8, Paul argues that the church at Corinth should emulate the churches of Macedonia in giving towards the work of God. That's the context. But Paul does not tell them the reason he wants them to do that until he gets to verse 9. They should give towards others because they have received grace. That's what verse 9 is saying. Paul is saying the grace of Christmas that saves us enables us to model grace to others. Christmas is not only grace to us, but grace through us. So as you celebrate Christmas, 
If you're a true follower of Jesus, let me ask you this question. How are you going to model the grace of Christmas this week? How have you been modeling it today already? You can start with the question, who are you planning to invite in your homes over this week? Of course, today, perhaps you're constrained by family. Are you planning to open up your homes to your neighbor? Friends, people on the fringe of church life? During this holiday season when you got time? As Paul aged the church at Corinth to set their heart in direction towards others? Are you planning to do that? Who will you tell about Jesus this week? Which struggling believer are you going to pursue this Christmas week to encourage them in their walk with Jesus? Or is Christmas just about you? How are you going to use your time? Just binge TV watching, running after the latest sales. Or will you spend some time with those who are alone? Perhaps those who are in hospital among us this week. Even today. To be in the presence of Jesus is to change. Did you hear that? To be in the presence of Jesus is to change. There's no one the Lord Jesus met in the gospel who was not transformed by him or repelled by him. We cannot have one posture towards the Lord Jesus Christ and a different one towards other people. It's impossible. So this Christmas, let us come before God afresh to draw on this sensational grace of Christmas by asking God to help us live out this grace to others. And finally, just quickly, I'll end here. This passage was an encouragement to some of you here, dear brothers and sisters, who find yourselves burdened with the overwhelming weight of Christmas. Some of you have families where other members do not share your faith in Christ. Some of you are struggling with financial pressures. Some of you are battling physical and mental health. Others miss loved ones who are now home in glory. Christmas this year won't be the same because there will be somebody missing in your life. Christmas can be a challenging time for men. Well, whatever your situation, if you trust in Jesus, this passage is saying to you that this grace of Christmas is not an appetizer. It is the main meal. For you, you have received all the grace you need. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. I hope you know it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul is saying to you this morning, because we are in Jesus, his story is our story. God the Son is our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son is our Lord. But a grand reminder, that means he's our ruler and sovereign. God the Son is our Jesus. That is to say, he's our Savior forever. God the Son is our Christ. That is to say, he is our Messiah. If you are a true believer, you are now under his rule and protection. And under his care every single day. Oh, so children of God, this Christmas, get excited. Rest fully on this grace that is yours in Christ. That is richly ours. Keep looking to Jesus. You are all right.
more than right with him. You are rich, spiritually rich in Christ. Amen.